This is 105.9 The Region, and you're listening to Discovery, the radio show for podcasters. Your content, unfiltered. This is Discovery. Good morning and welcome to Discovery. I'm Bill Hutchison, Program Coordinator for Journalism at Seneca College, and this morning we have three podcasts from our students. First up, Aaliyah Davis continues her series, Canadian Killers, with a look at a man who claims to have murdered 22 people. Here he is cold-blooded. April 24, 1985. 17-year-old Elizabeth Gail Tucker was on her way to a fish processing plant in Nova Scotia's west coast. Her luggage had been sent ahead with a friend. Now all she needed to do was hitchhike her way to the plant. Her mother was worried about the hitchhiking and offered to get her bus money, but the bank was closed and Tucker didn't want to wait, so off she went. A few days later, Tucker's mother had heard nothing from her and was scared something had happened. She contacted police and Tucker was reported missing. They traced Tucker by the cars that had picked her up that day, but her movements suddenly stopped at Weymouth, only a few kilometers from her destination. No one can find her after that, until six months later. A man walking his dog found skeletal remains in the woods south of Weymouth. There had been no attempts to hide the body. Dental records confirmed that the body was indeed Elizabeth Gale Tucker. She had been stabbed to death. Her death was tragic, but nobody could predict that this was the starting point for a bloodthirsty killer. Welcome to the fifth episode of Canadian Killers. This podcast will go over the crimes, investigation, and trial of known Canadian serial killers. But before we get started, I must mention, this podcast will contain the topics of substance abuse, violence, sexual assault, and use explicit language. It is not suitable for younger audiences. Michael Wayne McRae was born in Collingwood, Ontario in 1965. His family moved to Nova Scotia while he was still young. McGray claims his father was an alcoholic and would beat him for the tiniest mistake, and sometimes would beat him for nothing at all. He often get into fights at school and eventually ended up in a group home in Shelburne for boys with unmanageable behavior. There, he says he was sexually assaulted on multiple occasions. That's when he started killing ducks and birds. He began killing them by hand, but after a duck escaped his grasp, he started killing them with a chopping knife he'd found at school. After he got his hands on the chopping knife, he went on a rampage, killing a number of animals within a few days. Eventually, killing animals became unsatisfying, and that's when McRae decided he wanted something more challenging. He wanted to kill people. McRae was 19 years old when he killed Tucker. Tucker was hitchhiking when he picked her up. He says he was with an acquaintance at the time, but both the Crown and the defense didn't believe him. When she got in his truck, he asked for oral sex's payment, and when she refused, he flew into a rage. He drove them to a private spot in the woods. Then he pulled her out of the car, tore off her clothes, and stabbed her repeatedly, leaving her in the bushes. This horrendous act must have quenched his thirst for blood for a bit, because there's a two-year gap between his next murder. On November 14, 1987, 
McGray, along with two accomplices, Mark Gibbons and Norm Warren, made a plan to rob a taxi driver in St. John's, New Brunswick. When they got into the taxi, Gibbons sat in the front and McGray and Warren sat in the back. They told the cabbie where they wanted to go. And once they got there, they confronted the man and Gibbons pulled out a knife. It's said that Gibbons saw the cab driver make a motion for his jacket, so he stabbed him in the hand. With the robbery now botched, changing to a robbery and assault with a deadly weapon, the three men fled to the Market Square Mall and the taxi driver called the police. Once police showed up, Gibbons was found. Dead. He had a stab wound right under his heart. The next day, Warren and McGray called the police asking where Gibbon was, perhaps to try to get their attention away from them. But if that was the goal, they failed miserably. The police traced a phone call and found them both in an apartment. They bolted, but after a short chase, they were caught. McGray was able to convince the police that Warren killed Gibbons. Not to mention, McGray only had charges for robbery and property offenses in his past, where Warren was known for his previous violent crimes. During the trial, though, Warren was found not guilty for the murder, but was sentenced to 11 years for his part in the robbery. And McGray was sentenced to five for his part in the robbery, neither of them being convicted for murder. McGray would later admit that it was him who stabbed Gibbons after an argument about the robbery gone wrong. In spring 1991, McGray was temporarily released from prison and given a three-day weekend pass to stay at the halfway house in Montreal, Quebec during Easter weekend. During his time in Montreal, McGray went to a gay bar where he met Robert Astley. They drank and talked about hockey, and Astley must have got quite comfortable because he invited McGray back to his place. There, they shared more drinks and talked. McGray ended up falling asleep on the couch, but around 6 a.m., he woke up. Astley was in his bedroom getting ready for the day. McGray took a knife from the kitchen and marched into Astley's room where he told him to get on the floor. Astley laughed, thinking McGray was joking. McGray flew into a rage and threw a lamp at Astley's head before stabbing him in the head and neck and throat multiple times. He left his body on the floor, only taking a bottle of booze with him. Astley was only found eight days later when his brother went to his apartment and saw the bloody crime scene. Astley's murder must have brought McGray's taste for blood back because the same day he killed Astley, he began looking for his next victim. He met Gaetel Ethier at another gay bar. There, they sparked up small talk before Ethier invited McGray back to his apartment. They watched a hockey game on his pull-out couch while drinking wine. Ethier fell asleep, and McGray stayed up all night, just watching him. Sometime in the morning, McGray grabbed a knife and a beer bottle. While Ethier was sleeping, McGray hit him over the head with the bottle and began stabbing him. Ethier fought back, trying to get to his phone, but McGray cut the phone wire with the knife. McGray overpowered Ethier, killing him. He grabbed a bottle of wine before he left. 
McGray opted not to return to prison after his three-day weekend pass, but was found nearly two months later and rearrested. Here, the story takes a very dark turn. 1998. Joan Hicks moved from Newfoundland to New Brunswick with her 11-year-old daughter, Nina. She had been writing a convict and wanted to move closer to the prison where he resided. Since Mix Hicks quite literally grabbed her daughter and left, they didn't have a residency yet before moving, so they stayed in a homeless shelter for a little time. There they met a woman named Tammy McLean and her boyfriend, Michael McRae. Even after Hicks found a basement apartment for her and her daughter, the three remained friends. On February 28, 1998, McRae called Hicks and said she was having trouble with McRae's drinking and drug use. Hicks then invited McLean over to try to calm her down. McRae was out partying with his friend Glenn Bennett, drinking and doing cocaine to be specific. Late that night, McRae said to Bennett that he wanted to kill somebody, and Bennett agreed to come along. They began looking for easy prey, but couldn't find anyone, so they went to the Hicks apartment. They knocked on the door and saw Tammy. They chased her away, saying they were going to party with Hicks. When she left, they slammed Hicks against the wall and strangled her. She fought back as best she could before she passed out. Then they slit her throat. Now, no one knows for sure what happened to Nina, but she was found hanging in her closet in her underwear. The next day, feeling guilt, Bennett contacted the police, saying he witnessed two brutal murders and gave them Hicks' address and McGray's location. McGray was picked up and confessed to killing Miss Hicks, but said he didn't kill her daughter. McGray and Bennett spent the rest of the time pointing fingers at each other for Nina's death, but eventually McGray said he'd killed many people, but Nina was not one of them. The confession of the killing of Gail Elizabeth Tucker and others followed. It was proved true by the information he knew. He knew things only the killer would know. McGray was required to take a 60-day psych exam. He was diagnosed with a nervous condition similar to Tourette's, but was found fit to stand trial. He pleaded guilty for Hicks' death, but not Nina's. He was given a life sentence, but he wasn't done confessing. During one of his transfers, he told an officer that he was willing to confess to 11 other crimes. In exchange for more information, though, he asked for immunity and psychological help, but it was denied. This is where I would usually end these podcasts, but as McGray described it, he had an overwhelming need to kill. On November 22nd, a lockdown occurred at the prison McGray was staying at when a metal bracket went missing from a ping pong paddle. At 9.58, McGray called the prison staff, saying he was unable to wake his cellmate, Jeremy Phillips. Phillips laid face down in his bunk, dead. It didn't take much questioning for McGray to confess. Seven minutes into the count, he forced Phillips to lay on his bunk and used the bedsheets to bind his hands and feet. Then he blindfolded him and shoved a sock into his mouth before strangling him. Phillips had complained on multiple occasions, saying he was scared of his cellmate and requested a transfer, 
but his request wasn't taken seriously. The Phillips family did sue the prison, saying their negligence caused the death of Jeremy Phillips. McGray was transferred to a maximum security prison in British Columbia. In BC, they had a coroner inquest to suggest what steps could be taken to help prevent another death. One of the suggestions? To not give him a cellmate. In May 2001, McGray pleaded guilty in a Nova Scotia courtroom to the murder of Elizabeth Gail Tucker. Her boyfriend, Glenasson, having spent 17 years in prison for the crime which he always denied. McGray claims to have committed 22 murders across Canada and is suspected of a murder in Seattle. McGray is currently serving a life sentence and will be 72 before he can apply for parole. The information for this podcast came from court transcript and Canadian news coverage of the events of Michael McGray. Next up, Clément Adjuman talks to a Seneca rugby star about why she chose the rough-and-tumble sport. Hello everyone, this is your host Klima Arjuman and this is the Say News podcast themed women in sports and we are going to talk about rugby. We all know rugby is one of the roughest and dirtiest sports in the world. Well, according to World Rugby Statistics in 2018, over a third of all rugby players in the world are now women. Today our guest is 20-year-old rugby champion Zoe Siciliano. She is currently the captain and the face of the women's rugby varsity team here at Seneca College. We're going to talk about her struggles as a woman in the sports and how she's managed to stay on top of the game and be the winner that she is. And to start with, the question is, why rugby? So I got into rugby in high school actually. I started playing in grade 10 and I ended up quitting soccer because I just didn't really like I didn't think it was too aggressive and I wanted to play something where you know I could actually hit people and and, you know it'd be a good aggressive sport so I quit soccer started playing rugby um and from there it's just been you know years of playing um at a high level at a college level and hopefully the national level soon as well wait so you actually quit soccer to play rugby just because it wasn't aggressive enough for you? Yeah, definitely. Um, I think I've always, been, I mean, I've always been like a very hyperactive person. Playing sports came naturally to me, but it was never fulfilling enough, I guess, like when I was playing. And, you know, when you play a sport, you can't be so, like sometimes you can only be so aggressive where you either are too aggressive for the sport and it causes you to not be as good of a player or... You know, you play a sport like rugby where aggression comes. It needs, and you need to have aggression to play rugby because that's what you're doing. You're hitting people, you're tackling people. You know, so that's why rugby was perfect for me. So, what are some of the challenges you face as a woman? I mean, being a female athlete, it's 
definitely, uh, you know, it, it has its ups and downs. Um, people don't really like to take it as seriously because, you know, it's, oh, uh, you know, female sports, you know, not, not as important. Nobody watches female sports. Like, that's what, you know, some comments I get. Um, I mean, being a female myself, you know, as a female, you know, you're looked at to be feminine and not big, muscular, strong. And that's what I am is I'm big and muscular. And so, you know, definitely like some looks and some comments here and there sometimes about my body and the way that I am and the way that, you know, um, I am physically. So, you know, definitely a lot of struggles with like body, body image growing up, um, and comments that, you know, female sports aren't taken as seriously as male sports. How do you even deal with it? Yeah, I mean, uh, playing playing rugby like you know, it's given me a lot, um, giving me a lot of confidence, giving me a lot of uh, about a better insight. And playing rugby, I've met so many people, so many women and, and men too as well. But so many women that are strong and confident, just like me, and and you know, them playing a sport that they love and that they appreciate just as much as me. I mean, it, it really gives me a um, better look at you know what rugby can do for so many people. So playing it's just you know it's really changed my life for the better and and needing to be uh big and muscular and physical is you know that's that's what you need to be with rugby so you know i've really uh accepted myself and accepted my body as the way i am and you know i just keep growing from here right and be honest between the male and female rugby team at seneca which one is more successful or has won the most trophies the women's team has placed in has placed top three and has received a medal in the last four seasons. Starting off, we've gotten bronze, and then we had gold, uh, bronze again, and then bronze after that. So, you know, it's only gone up from there. In my two seasons competing at Seneca, we, uh, when we went to New York uh, to compete in a tournament, we won uh, the whole thing my first year, and then we unfortunately didn't place the second year. But again, we just, you know, we've we've won medals like the last four years consecutively. Versus the men, unfortunately, I know the men are a great team. I think, you know, again, like the men is just they're rebuilding and going up and that's all they can keep doing. Um, you know, they had a really good chance at winning bronze last, uh, not last year, but the year before in 2019. And, uh, you know, again, I think, um, I think they're a great team. I just think that, you know, the women's team, you know, we've, <laughs> we've just caught up and gone up and we've done a lot, you know, for Seneca to be representing um, Seneca and, and women's rugby. And, does Seneca recognize your achievement? I mean, do they give the same attention to both the female and the male rugby team? Or does one receive better treatment? Honestly, I think the women's team is, is treated very well, sometimes better than the men's team. But that's only because we play two different types of rugby. They play, the men's play 15, the women's play 7. Uh, one incident uh, in, the 20, in 2019, the women's team got sent to New York uh, to play in the tournament versus the men's team, they weren't sent to New York because the like because the finances. But that's only because the women's team, you know, we've been we've been exceptional the last you know four four years five years. Um, we've only been growing and, and growing from there. So I think the women's team is treated very well, sometimes a little bit better, as we should because you know we we do compete and we do uh, we, we you know we've shown it on the field and we've shown it uh, every season. So I think we're treated quite well. Well, kudos to Seneca for being fair and giving the deserved treatment to the male and female rugby team respectively. I have been to a couple of their training sessions and games. The passion and the determination they exhibit is not lesser than the men. 
So it's not surprise the trophy cabinet is not empty and dusty. We wish Zoe and her teammates more success in the future. Hopefully when things goes back to normal, they'd continue to lift Seneca's banner higher and higher in rugby. Well, that's it folks for our very first episode of Women in Sports Podcast. I was your host Claymore Arjuman and this podcast was edited and co-produced by the brilliant Sharice Smiley. Stay safe and stay tuned for our next episode. And finally, Luana Saturnino explains how plastic bags can be turned into beautiful hats, rugs, and other things. What a waste. What a waste is your sustainability podcast with a focus on waste reduction and science. On this episode, what the plan? They are everywhere, from stores to households, floating in a scene of the film American Beauty. You want to see the most beautiful thing I've ever filmed? The stomach of fishes until a bird's nest. And this bag was just dancing with me. Plastic bags are tricky to recycle. Some cities do, some cities don't. But what happens when an entire country doesn't? You can make plan. Plastic yarn. Plan is a creative yet free way of reuse plastic bags. You can braid it, knit it, crochet and even weave it. Tiana Neufeld is a textile artist who lives in Lesotho. She was born there, raised in Canada, and came back to live in Lesotho three years ago. She volunteers at the Moridia Art Center and she teaches her community how to make art with plan. Sorry, in college I was, I was very interested in using plastic and recycled material to begin with. Um, I was drawn to it because just to bring attention to it and bring attention to A, the fact that we have so much garbage in our lives and B, that most clothing we wear is also garbage. Anyway, there was a whole conversation around that in college. But I was very, very used to um, using either like deconstructed reconstruction. So like buying something thrift and reconstructing it into something else, um, reusing, recycling um, and, and really collecting. I've, I've always been like a collector artist. Tayana is the kind of artist that she likes to make things with secondhand materials or salvage, reclaimed materials. So she collects. She collects um, waste and uses it in her work. And she, she finds pretty easy to do this in Lesotho. So when I came to Lesotho, I think, I think it just crystallized a few different things, which are struggles we don't, we don't have in Canada, for example. One, we have a real lack of access to art materials, art supplies. And as soon as I got here, it became clear that um, there's, you, can't in, you can't order anything off the internet um, unless there's a place that you can drop it off in South Africa. 
and that's you know a border to go through which was even annoying even before covid restrictions um but right now it's literally impossible secondly i mean i think i really think that's an opportunity to use local materials in Lesotho, we do have access to a lot of wool and mohair. There's a huge wool and mohair industry. It's one of our biggest exports. But that material is quite expensive to buy after it's been spun and dyed. So as, as a weaving instructor, and part of what I'm trying to do here is encourage people to weave for low cost and easy accessible materials that you can get locally. And plastic is just all of those things. It's free uh, to pick up. You can just collect them from the shop or I've collected them from my neighbors. Um, you can pick them up off the streets if you're willing to wash them and, and um, you know, prepare them that way. It's a country, it's a territory with no programs of recycling. Um, it's everywhere. And I really like I really like the commentary that it that it um, it's the opportunity to talk about a lot of the things in the Sutu that are a problem um, environmentally, especially. Um, you know, there's no there's not a <laughs> government recycling program or trash collection. All all household trash is collected and burned in a pit at the edge of your yard. You know, that's everyone does it, um, and so. Weaving with plastic and making them into making it into really beautiful things um, really pulls the attention towards um, a, a how you use the plastic, how households can can rethink how they're using plastics, and also rethink how they're how they're disposing of plastics. Because I don't know, it just makes so much sense <laughs> in the context where I'm in. Um, I never I never made plyarn in Canada. I guess I, I never needed to, because there you can just Mostly I was weaving with cotton and you can just order it online and it'll arrive at your post box. Of course you can use fabric bags to go shopping. But the problem is that delivery services usually leave their products at your door using plastic bags. So they are quite easy to accumulate. I have to say I do. I tended towards using eco bags also, especially when I was in Canada. Here, People look at you like you have a third eye or something if you bring your own bag. So I I I I use them from the shop, but I, I collect them and I turn them into other things. Um, it's my primary way of collecting plastics. So I'll collect them from the shop, and then if if they're dirty, I mean you can clean them. Um, I find if they if they're free of holes, it's best. So if they don't have really big rips in them, you can still use them. But for we've Thing, it's quite annoying. But to prevent your plant to degrade into microplastics, you must leave it out of direct sunlight. Also, yeah, to be to be notice, take notice of, of plastics that have been in the sun for a long time because they do break down um, from UV light. So I again, I prefer to use plastics that um, that are fresh from the shop. They haven't really had much time in the outdoors. Uh, that being said, there are some uses for those, those you know, really manky plastics you get on the street. Um, and I'm looking forward to doing a, a larger installation piece. Um, I have washed them, again, with, with cold water and soap. Um, they degrade over time, but um, I mean, I've had mine in my house for over a year and they still look pretty nice. So, so I use them as, as rugs mostly so that's probably a high a high wear item if you were making um bags or coasters or clutches or 
their hats made me like I've had this hat for years and it still looks amazing. You just listened to What a Waste podcast. I am Luana Saturnino, host and producer. Reduce, reuse, recycle, rethink. Thanks for joining us. If you'd like to hear more of our student podcasts, go to SenecaJournalism.ca. Discovery, the radio show for podcasters, exclusive to 105.9 The Region. Expand your audience and extend your reach. Send us your podcast, info at 1059theregion.com.